Okay, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to 13 this morning we'll be looking at as we conclude our series on the two witnesses. This, has been, uh, this is the fifth sermon um, that I'll be doing on uh, this particular topic, and uh, I'll be concluding uh, this particular series today on the two witnesses. And really, this whole series came from the previous series, which was about the transfiguration. And when Jesus brought his three disciples up um, on a mountain and um, he was transfigured, the Bible says he was glorified in front of them. And with him were Moses and Elijah. And they appeared with him as well. And they had this discussion together. And uh, from that, I've... um, decided to uh, cover these two witnesses and their role in the future time or some future time uh, during what the, the Bible calls the tribulation period or the time of Jacob's trouble. So we'll be looking at uh, the conclusion to, that, uh, to this uh, series this morning. So uh, Revelation chapter 11 verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And when they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them and the same hour there um, was there a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the god of heaven let's go to the lord in prayer and commit this time to him father we do thank you once again for this precious word that we can look into and trust with all of our hearts our lives and our souls we ask this morning that as I share these uh, these truths with my brethren here, I pray that you would open up our our understanding, um, that we might be able to receive these truths in our lives, and that they might change our lives uh, for your glory and for good. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us, bless us with your grace, with wisdom, and the knowledge that we need to walk the walk which you have uh, you've set us upon, and to walk this path, Lord. We thank you for the the light of your word. And we do thank you that we can trust it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For those of us uh, who are a little bit older, cast your minds back to when you were a young child. I know that might be a bit more difficult for some of us than others. But cast your minds back to the, the things and the rules and some of the regulations that your parents had for you growing up, which you may have thought when you were young were completely unreasonable, completely unreasonable rules such as eating your vegetables um, or brushing your teeth or coming home before dark or not being wary of strangers 
crossing, looking before you cross the road, things like that, you know, things that kids really don't care too much about sometimes. Um, but that your parents uh, instilled in you, um, which you thought maybe were more of a nuisance or more of a pain than a benefit. Um, things like cleaning up after yourself as well. But as we matured and as we, as we grew up, we began to understand the value of those things. Things that we thought were a pain and were putting us through suffering, uh, we, we realized later on were actually for our good. And uh, for most of us, I dare say for all of us, those lessons that we learned from our parents, which we realized were for our good, we are teaching to our own children and we have taught to our own children. This sermon is primarily about this particular topic. When it comes to things such as pain and suffering and other such things that we go to or go through, we often struggle to comprehend the reason that we go through them. If I've got a relationship with God and God is my father, why do I why does he allow me to go through difficult times in my life? Why does he allow me to go through pain and suffering? But just as an adult sees things more clearly than a child does. God sees things much more clearly than we do as adults even. But through it all, there are certain truths that are always certain, that don't change. We found out, we realized when we grew up that our parents gave us those rules or made us go through certain things which we thought may have been painful and or caused us suffering because they actually loved us. And the same is true for God. God allows his children to go through suffering because of love. And there are certain things that don't change about God. God is good. He loves his children. In fact, the Bible says he loves the world. He loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. It's also true that God knows all things. That God is holy. And that God wants his children to be holy like him. But because we live in fallen uh, bodies, because we still have fallen natures that, that, that want to still take charge in our lives, um, God allows us to go through suffering for our good. Because to be holy is not, a, is not an easy thing for us to do. And sometimes God allows us to go through certain things in our lives for a number of different reasons. So this final message concerning the two witnesses is a bit about this. And my hope is uh, through this message that you'll keep this particular idea in mind. Because people often ask questions such as, why do good things happen or bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to God's people? And I'm hoping by the end of this that you will understand why. Because the Bible makes it quite clear. There are certain things that don't change. And there are certain things that sometimes we need to go through in order to mature in our lives. Let's continue. Let's recap so far where we are today and what we've actually discovered during the last four sermons. Well, we discovered and confirmed the identity of the two witnesses. The identity of the two witnesses that will come during the tribulation period are Moses and Elijah. That the same two that presented themselves on top of that mountain when Jesus was glorified. 
they are listed a number of times together throughout all of Scripture. And we found out not only did Elijah not die, but Moses also had a very strange type of death. Um, and the, the devil, the Bible says, tried to deceive and dispute to get hold of his body. So those two who represent the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah, are witnesses of Jesus during the tribulation period. We determine that they will bring, or they will, uh, uh, their ministry will um, take place during the second half of the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is a seven-year period. From the beginning, the Antichrist will uh, reveal himself. Christians won't be here because we will already be being taken up into heaven, but the rest of the world will begin to endure a seven-year tribulation period. But by far the worst part of that of those seven years will be the final three and a half years. And those final three and a half years are when Moses and Elijah will return. They will be witnesses for Christ. And they will witness against the one who is pretending to be Christ, what the Bible calls the Antichrist or the Antichrist. Their, their return will be just before the great and terrible day of the Lord coming back as king of kings. Elijah's job will be to turn the, heart, the hearts of the children to the fathers and the heart of the fathers back to the children, which will mean that Israel will be brought back to the original faith that they had and they will realise Jesus is Lord. There will be a revival because of the ministry of these two. They will perform miracles similar to what they have performed already. In fact, the, the list of miracles that these, these uh, two are said to, or, or that will do during the tribulation period, almost mimic precisely what they've already done, which points even more to the fact that these two will be Moses and Elijah. And despite the, the best efforts of their enemies, they will not be able to kill them until they have completed their three-and-a-half-year work and they will complete their, the, the, the actual preaching that they've been called to do by God. At the end of this period, the Bible tells us that the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them. Now, we looked at the identity of this particular um, uh, being as a fallen angel, someone who's been locked up in hell or the bottomless pit for a particular sin that he committed. He is one of the worst angels. The Bible even gives him a name. He is called Abaddon or Apollyon, which essentially means the destroyer. So he's been locked up for quite a long time in the bottomless pit. And like the other uh, fallen angels, he will be let turned loose or let loose in those last days. We saw that this angel is the one who will inhabit the Antichrist, the one the, the, the Bible calls the Antichrist, or the son of perdition. He will seek to rule through this particular being, and he will proclaim himself to be God as he sits on the throne. The beast will behave, or the Antichrist will behave like Jesus. He will pretend to be Jesus. He will arrive like a man of peace, like a lamb, but after a miraculous recovery, after he endures some sort of um, uh, near-death experience or, or some sort of death, 
um, it looks as if he rises again. But he changes in his nature. And he changes in a very bad way. He changes for the worse. So he pretend he, he actually he goes from a nature of having a, to being like a lamb to being like a lion. And he is one of the angels who has ruled possibly world kingdoms uh, in the past that are listed in the Bible. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So where are we at? So where we are at then with this passage concerning our two witnesses during the tribulation period? Well, the majority of the world will have been deceived by the Antichrist who will pretend, as I've said, to be Jesus Christ returned. In a, in a previous series, I spoke to you that, I, I shared with you that most of the world's major religions are waiting for a Christ to return or a Messiah to return. In fact, it probably covers more than about 70 or 80% of the people on this planet are waiting for some sort of Messiah to return. So the Bible tells us that when the Antichrist returns, he will manage to fool most of the world into believing that he is the returned one. And it says that the, the, the world will wonder after him. In other words, it will be amazed by him. He will be loved. He will be revered. He will be worshipped. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And it says there, And then shall that wicked be revealed. Now that wicked is that the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. People will believe a lie, because of Satan's power of deception. He will perform miracles. People will believe him because he will be doing party tricks for them. And they will fall for that lie because they don't love the truth. Instead, the Bible says, because they have pleasure in unrighteousness, they would rather neglect the truth and believe a lie. And so we have the two witnesses being overcome by this beast. This beast that comes from the bottomless pit. And the Bible says that they are killed and left in a street in Jerusalem for three and a half days while the world rejoices. Look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 11. It says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, 
which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now that might, that's a little bit confusing, that last verse, or it might seem a bit strange. Where did they die again? Well, the first thing that I would like you to take notice is, is this. It says that they shall die in the street of the great city. Which city? Where were the two witnesses actually prophesying in and doing their work in? Do you remember? Well, look, they were prophesying in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple. Were they actually killed in Jerusalem? Well, yes. It says they were killed in the same city where our Lord was crucified. So where was Jesus crucified? Well, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Well, technically, just outside of Jerusalem, because he was crucified outside the gates of the city. But nevertheless, in Jerusalem. So this is referring to Jerusalem. But then why does it call Jerusalem the great city where our Lord was crucified, then immediately refer to it as spiritually as Sodom and Egypt? And because Egypt was synonymous with idolatry and oppression and spiritual oppression, you remember? I mean, the, 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 um, the Israelites were kept captive there for 400 years. And they were, they were turned into slaves there. They were made slaves and forced to work for Pharaoh. So Egypt is a, is a symbol of idolatry because they worshipped all these other gods, like Horus and Seth and, uh, and Isis and all these different, uh, and Ra, all these different gods. So it was, it was a picture of idolatry, of false worship, and it was also a picture of spiritual oppression. Sodom was, a, was synonymous with sin. Sodom's sin was so great that God came and, and, and literally had to destroy the city because he said that their sin had reached heaven. So Jerusalem is being called these from a spiritual point of view now. Yeah, Jerusalem is a place where Jesus was rejected. He was rejected there. He was crucified there. And while prophets have been killed also there for thousands of years, the same spirit that leads people into bondage of sin and idolatry is the same one that has held Jerusalem captive for so many years. And the Israelites blinded to the truth of the gospel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verse 34, because this spirit um, has blinded um, the Jews over the years from understanding and receiving Jesus as their saviour. And now there is no reason at all to, because uh, over, the, over the years, uh, the Jews have been ostracised, they've been persecuted, and there's no reason for that, because much of the world doesn't believe in Jesus. But these are God's people whom he chose. And unfortunately for them, they chose to reject him as their king when he arrived. And listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It will only be towards the end when Jerusalem will begin to say, 
Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Because the name of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that spirit still lingers. And in the days of the Antichrist, this time in the future, um, Jerusalem will be a place of rebellion against God. The devil will actually try and set up his kingdom to rule the earth from that place. His hatred for God and for his people will be so strong that his ultimate desire is to have Israel as his place of rule in the earth, where his man, the Antichrist, sits on a throne. And unfortunately, much of, much of uh, Jerusalem will be under spiritual bondage and will be spiritually oppressive and filled with sin. And it says there that the beast that, that ascends from the bottomless pit will overcome the two witnesses. So the question might, you might ask is, why did the Lord allow them to be overcome by this beast in the first place? I mean, if he kept them safe for three and a half years, if they had the power to defend themselves, even with calling fire upon people and destroying them when they tried to attack them, why did God allow this beast to overcome them surely he, he could have taken them up back into heaven without going through suffering well the first reason that the Lord may allow certain things to happen like this where he may allow the devil what seems to be some sort of victory is because God is omniscient God knows everything but Satan doesn't all of these all of his supposed victories end up backfiring on him because the Lord knows better. Let me give you some examples of that. Where things were allowed to happen, God allowed certain bad things to happen, but ended up actually being good. Do you remember a fellow called Job in the Bible? Well, calamity after calamity came upon Job. Job, the Bible says, was a faithful person to God. He loved God. He was concerned about his family. He was living a, a, the right life before God. And God even, even boasted about him when he said to Satan, look at my servant Job, look at him. And Satan came to God and said, he's not doing that for any other reason other than you're protecting him. If you took this or did this to him or allowed this to happen to him, he would curse you to your face. So God allowed Satan to allow calamities to fall upon Job. But look at what happened. Job, in the end, his faith became even stronger. He remained faithful to God. And now we have the book of Job, which has encouraged believers through suffering in our own lives for thousands of years. Satan, what Satan thought was a victory that he'd gained over, uh, over Job by taking away his family, his wealth and his own health. He thought, this, is, this guy's done now. But he wasn't. Because in the end, God turned it around for good. You know, Satan must have thought when he had, that he defeated God when he had Pharaoh enslave the Israelites in Egypt for hundreds of years. He must have thought, done 
You can forget about uh, God's plan coming to fruition here. I've got these people under, under Pharaoh's thumb and they're, they're oppressed. They've been oppressed for hundreds of years. No chance God's going to do anything here. But yet the Bible says that God rescued them in an amazing way. And after thousands of years, we still celebrate. And the Jews still celebrate God rescuing them and saving them from Egypt. Remember, he parted the, the Red Sea. He, he, they walked literally with walls of water on each side. The Bible says that, that he brought them into the promised land. So what Satan may have thought was a victory ended up backfiring on him. And God's love and faithfulness came shining through. Satan may have thought that he had the better of God or won an amazing victory when he had Jesus tortured, crucified, and buried in a grave. That's going through suffering. But God knew what would happen on the third day. You see, God always knows stuff that Satan does not know. And we rejoice this day because Jesus, that God allowed Jesus, his own son, to go through that suffering for a reason. And that reason was to save us. Are you happy about that this morning? Because I am. And you'll find this same pattern existing throughout the entire Bible. God knows all things. And what the devil may see as a victory is only a temporary victory because the greater victory is always obtained by God. But the deep, there's a deeper reason here even that God allows his servants and his children to suffer. It's because every tribulation that the Lord allows his children to go through glorifies him. It brings him glory. Now you might think that doesn't actually make sense. How can God be glorified when his children, own children are suffering? You see, suffering is only for a time. But the glory of God lasts forever. And that's why we were created in the first place. We were created for God's glory. His glory, which ends up being a blessing to us as well. Because the Bible says, and you probably know this verse quite well, that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Even things that look bad end up working for good. The Bible says that we were created for his glory, to glorify him and to testify of his character. Here are a few further examples of this in scripture. Times when bad things happened to good people, which ended up glorifying God. I want you to think about Lazarus. Now, there's a couple of uh, people called Lazarus in the, uh, in the New Testament. One was a, a beggar who ended up dying. Okay, and Jesus gave a story about him and compared him to a rich man. The other one was, a, was Jesus' friend, a man called Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And the Bible says when Lazarus got sick, Jesus purposely waited before arriving to him and he died and when he arrived Lazarus had already been dead for four days even even those who mourned with Mary and Martha were saying that Jesus could have done something if he had come earlier he had done so many other miracles he could have prevented Lazarus from dying he let Lazarus die now that's not nice is it yeah but turn with me to John chapter 11 verse 21 John chapter 11, verse 21, explains this encounter. It says in John eleven twenty one, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, 
if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Was she correct? Spot on. He probably wouldn't have died if Jesus was there. But she says this, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. That's faith. Verse 23 it says, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. When Jesus arrived at the grave, um, Jesus then told them to remove the stone. Now Martha thought that Jesus was talking about the final resurrection, when, when the one that, that Alan was talking about, um, that Mr. Perry was talking about, when we were all going to go up. Well, no, Jesus said, that's not the one I'm talking about. And he said, come follow me. And he told them, remove the stone. Now, when people were buried in those days, they were buried in a, in a, in a hole, essentially in a wall or, or, a, or a small cave, and they'd roll a stone in front of it to, to, to close it off. Jesus says, remove the stone. And look at, what, look at um, what it says in verse 39 of chapter 11 of John. Jesus says, take ye away the stone, Martha. The, the, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been dead for four days. Was she right? Yeah, people start stinking. They start decaying after, after a few days. Verse 40 then says, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? What happened? Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus, after four days of being dead in the grave, comes out of that grave. Alive, not dead, not decayed, he came out healthy. Who was glorified through it? God was. God was glorified because Jesus waited for Lazarus to die. Through his death, the world witnessed the power that Jesus Christ has over life and death. And if you had any concerns about rising again from the grave, that God could actually rise you up, even physically, from the grave, and if you're wondering about the limitations of God's power, this was going to increase your faith. To see someone who was dead in the grave for four days, had been wrapped up, was smelling, and all of a sudden, this guy's walking out of the grave. And the same thing occurred when the two witnesses were killed. The re their resurrection, when God calls them up, God was glorified. Go back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 12 with me. Have a look at what happens. So after three and a half days, the whole world is wrapped that they're dead. They're very happy that they're dead because they didn't want to hear them anymore. They were, the Bible says they were, they were being tormented by them. How's that for a, uh, for a thing? These guys are preaching the truth and the world takes it as torment. But anyway, when they're killed, the Bible says that the whole world sees it and says, don't even bury them. Leave them where they are. So for three and a half days, everyone's pretty happy in the world. And look at verse 12, what it says. So they, they, they're resurrected after three and a half days. And in verse 12 it says, And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. Come up here. 
and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, when God called, when God made them physically get up on their feet again, first of all, the whole world was like, what is going on here? Then God calls them up and they hear this voice saying, come up here. And they see them physically rise. So it says their enemies beheld them. Then this is massive earthquake. And what happens? God's glorified through it. Do you know the, the same thing occurred throughout the, throughout the early years of Christianity especially? When Christians had to endure um, persecutions, tribulations, tortures under emperors like Nero who had them routinely rounded up, thrown to lions, used as sport for Roman citizens, um, lit as torches, and killed in many, many ways. Someone like Nero tortured Christians in plain view of people to humiliate them and their God in front of the citizens of the Roman Empire. It was to show them the reason they threw Christians to the lions and they did it in a Colosseum, a bit like the MCG. So imagine, imagine crowds in the MCG not watching football, but watching, Christian, watching lions being turned loose in the middle of that arena and then having seen Christians, people who you knew who were calling themselves Christians that were followers of Christ, all of a sudden they're, they're, allowed, they're, they're brought into that, that stadium and they're thrown in there chained to be eaten alive by lions. Now, if you were in the middle of that, you'd say, what is going on here? Because it looks as if Nero has the upper hand. Nero has ultimate power. He's making fools of Christians. He's making, he's making God look like a fool because he's not protecting his own children. But you know what's interesting? Is that the more that someone like Nero threw Christians to lions, the more Romans saw them and the way they died, because many of them died actually singing hymns, okay, and they showed no fear in death, because a Christian should have no fear in death, because he knows where he's going, or she knows where she's going. So when the more they saw this happening, it's not that they were turning away from God, the more they turned to God, and God was being glorified through it. In all of his efforts to suppress the gospel, the Romans were talking more about the gospel. Can you imagine them walking home and saying, you know what, I thought those Christians were foolish people, but look at the way they died. They died with a lot of courage, didn't they? And what did they actually believe? And you can imagine the gospel spreading even more because of his efforts to humiliate what he thought was getting the upper hand on God, on Christians, was actually being used by God to glorify himself. Some people wonder why the Lord allows his children to go through suffering. Why did he allow the two witnesses to have to die? Well, through the suffering, God is ultimately glorified. The faith of others is strengthened and people get saved. So the two witnesses are allowed to die because we see, we'll see this in the following verses, we'll see this in a bit more detail, God is absolutely glorified. 
Though it may seem that the beast had won a victory, that victory would only serve to glorify God even more greatly. Let's have a deeper look at the circumstances of their deaths to see how God is glorified and we can be edified through this. It says in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 11, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. All right, so we know what that is. Verse 9 says, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two, these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So while the world rejoiced, the majority of the world rejoiced over their deaths, and imagine that they had won a great victory, even to the point of giving each other presents. And isn't that a, a wonderful testimony of the scripture? Think for a moment how all the people of the world, first of all, could possibly do what is in verse 9 without modern technology. Have a look at, look at verse 9 again. Let's look at it a little bit more deeply here. Now, these two fellows die in a particular street in Jerusalem, okay? So just, just imagine that just for one moment. They die in a street in Jerusalem. Now look at what it says in verse 9. It says, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. How do people, how do kindreds and tongues and nations see their dead bodies? If it was in the days that John was writing this, the only ones who'd be seeing their dead bodies were the, were the few who'd be able to, to see them physically with their own eyes. No one else would be able to see them. But the scripture is so true. This scripture, which was written 2,000 years ago almost, is telling us that the world is able to see their dead bodies. And the world rejoices, not just a few people around them, but the entire world rejoices. So what John, the Apostle John, wrote in around 90 AD, and the King James Version that we hold in our hands was translated from these perfect words over 400 years ago. What sense could these words have made to them back then? This tells you the integrity of God's word. This tells you about the purity of God's word. Because it makes sense to us today. But even when it didn't make sense to them, when they didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle just yet, when they didn't have mobile phones and TVs and computers and internet in those days, when, when the people of the world couldn't be seen the same thing, they wrote and translated those words perfectly. And here we see the entire world see their dead bodies in the street of Jerusalem. And they rejoice for those three and a half days. And it says, then they shall rise again into heaven with a cloud in the presence of their enemies, who will not be able to do one thing about it. God will be glorified in these two witnesses 
and will be glorified when every word that he has given to us in the Bible will be perfectly and intricately fulfilled in every possible way. This is our calling as well, to glorify him in our lives. When despite our circumstances, we trust in him and do what's right despite the consequences of it, regardless of the consequences. Despite the circumstances, God wants us always to do his will, which is what these two witnesses did. Despite the fact that they were going to die and God knew they were going to die at the hands of this devil that came up from the bottomless pit. Because in the end, God will always be glorified and will be blessed. God will always be proven to be true and faithful and loving. And during the tribulation period, we know that there will be many, many believers who will die simply for saying they believe in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who wrote about this specific time and what would happen primarily to his own people, the Jews, during this time, when they begin to turn to the Lord and say, no, you're an antichrist, you're not the real Messiah, we're going to believe in Jesus Christ now. So there's, there's what we call a revival happening among them. But let's have, let's have a look in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, as he describes the outcome or the result of their turning to Jesus. And in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, and says, Such as do wickedly, and those people who, do, who are evil against the covenant, shall he corrupt by flatteries. He is the Antichrist. How is he going to win people over? He's going to flatter them. He's going to the ones who hate the, God's covenant will, will, will flock to him because he speaks nice words to them. He will tickle their every chingy ears. He'll tell them what they want to hear. And they'll, they'll do wickedly against the covenant. But the people that, that do know their God, it says, shall be strong and do exploits. They'll be strong. In the midst of that persecution, God's people will be strong. Verse 33 says, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. So look at what they're doing. What are they instructing in? They're instructing other people to believe the gospel, to understand the Bible. They, shall they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. So despite their faithfulness to God, despite the fact that they're witnessing, and you'll remember if you, you've read the, um, the book of Revelation, there are 144,000 Jewish men who will begin to witness to the entire world. They're the ones this is talking about. They will be, they shall fall by the sword, by the flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Verse 34 says, now when they shall fall by these methods, that's not fall as in fall um, from their faith. It's, that means fall as in dying. They shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Did you notice 
what it says about the people who know their God. They're going to fall by sword, flame, captivity and spoil, but they won't completely fail. It says the results of their death or the results of them experiencing this persecution will be that they will be made white to try them, to purge them, that God will be glorified through them. What's interesting about this particular passage as well, if you look at it, if you look at Revelation, go back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. It says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And what's interesting here is the custom that we're familiar with in our day. Our custom is to give gifts or to receive gifts during special occasions. The world we live in is familiar with giving gifts and receiving gifts during birthdays, Christmas, Easter, anniversaries, other special occasions. People give gifts when they're celebrating. If this pandemic has gone on for much longer, we may end up giving each other gifts at the end of the pandemic because we're so happy. When we read about the world sending gifts, sometimes it says, they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, they're going to have parties and they're going to send gifts one to another. They're going to send each other a cake, have a cake, or I'm going to bring this over your place, or you know, how about this as a, as a celebration that these two guys have, uh, have finally died. But really it's actually pointing to our age. It's pointing to things that we are accustomed to in our time. It's not that hard to imagine, is it? Imagine for a moment. Imagine the feeling of being hated by the entire world. You know, some people feel that the, the whole world's against them or, um, you know, people, everyone wants me dead or everyone doesn't love me. Can you imagine this is perfectly, that statement is perfectly true for these two individuals. Imagine what it would be like knowing the whole world actually wants you dead. That might make you feel bad. But remember what these two will have to put up with during their three and a half year mission to witness the truth. When the world uh, just does not want to hear the truth, that looks at their preaching and says, why are you tormenting me with this stuff? I wish you were dead. And when they do die, they're finally rejoicing and having parties. The whole world, imagine preaching for three and a half years and the whole world, except for a few, a small number, would rather believe a lie than accept the truth. So before you may be tempted to think that the whole world just doesn't understand you or doesn't like you, remember the life that Jesus experienced in this world. Remember these two witnesses. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53 just to remind us of Jesus' own three-year mission in this world and how he was treated and what he experienced. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he experienced what these two witnesses experienced. It says, it tells us there in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knew grief. Jesus knew sorrow. And the sorrow didn't come from, from because he felt sorry for himself. 
sorrow that, that you experience when you have what's good for someone else, but they refuse to want to hear it. And it says in verse in the verse 3, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So while he carried our sorrows and our weaknesses, we were pointing, or the world pointed at him and said, See what happened to you? God caused you to have that because you're a bad person. God allowed you to go to that cross because you were evil. But verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, doesn't speak, he, so he opened not his mouth. Imagine the feeling of loneliness Jesus felt. Yes, he had his heavenly father. But the majority of people that he was with failed to understand his message. Think of this even. The night of his arrest, the night when he was praying in the Mount of Olives, the Bible says that he sweat drops of blood. The, the, the anxiety or the pressure was that high. And his own disciples, the ones that were with him, couldn't even stay awake. When he asked them, can you please pray together with me? They fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake with him for one hour. Before he was crucified, in his loneliest time, his closest disciples abandoned him. The one who was the leader denied he even knew him three times. He was tried, he was convicted, and he was tortured all alone. But the important thing to remember is that even if the world, the whole world, is against you, the most important person you will ever need is the Lord. You may not have a friend in this world, but if you have Jesus, you have all the friendship you will ever need. He understands you. He knows what you're going through. So develop that friendship with him. Build on that. That's what God calls us to as his children. We are developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you neglect that relationship, then you're neglecting the most precious thing that you have if you're a Christian. And if you don't have that relationship, you're missing the most precious thing you can ever have in your life. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You're a conqueror this day if you understand that Jesus loves you. And it doesn't matter. It's... Despite you going through tribulation or distresses or persecutions or famines, which means you don't even have food to eat, whether you have no clothes on your back, 
whether you're, you're, whether you're dying by the sword, by peril, by an antichrist or by anything else, the Bible says there is nothing that separates us from his love. Even if we're slaughtered like sheep, which they will be during the tribulation period. Remember your Saviour, what he went through for you. He did it because he loves you. And that love has never diminished. Never diminished. And will never diminish. So regardless of what you're going through, don't be tempted to ever say, God doesn't love me. Because the Bible clearly tells us that despite whatever circumstances we go through, God's love never fails. Your Saviour's love for you never, ever diminishes. Remember, God is in control. When God calls those two witnesses up, and after three and a half days, they're back on their feet again. And then, as, as Alan uh, pointed out in his message, it's like a magnet picking up uh, metal. These two start rising up. That, that's a testimony of the power of God to resurrect. Even though they had been slain and lying dead for three and a half days, God is still able to raise them up simply by calling them back up into heaven. The power of, that God has to raise the dead gives us hope that we will be raised and made anew. Because Romans chapter 8, as Alan's already wonderfully shared with the children, Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. You know what I love about the Lord? That message that Alan gave this morning before the sermon, I didn't coordinate that with him. Yet here I am talking about the Spirit that is within you is a thing that's going to raise you up as it raised up Jesus. God is wonderful. In fact, God promises that you will experience a resurrection whether you are dead or whether you're still alive. Whether you're dead, the Bible says you'll be raised up. And even some of us, maybe us, maybe the next generation, I don't know. But some of us, while we're still walking around in these bodies, are going to go up like those two witnesses. One is called the rapture. The other is called the resurrection. But you know what? They're both really a resurrection because we're redeemed from these dead and decaying bodies. And it says there in the end, and that same hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. In the end, our lives, we were created to glorify God. These two witnesses completed their task on earth and through them, the people of God turned back to Jesus Christ and they were saved. God is glorified and the Antichrist is dealt a major blow in his plans for world domination. God is good. And I hope that you've enjoyed this series concerning these two witnesses. I hope that you've come to believe even more strongly that God's word is perfect, fully trustworthy and faithful. 
The joy we have as believers is that we can trust Jesus for all things. When he is your savior, you need nothing. You lack nothing. Because if you have him, you have everything. We need not fear any circumstances. We need not fear any future days. We need not fear what's coming tomorrow. Because in every circumstance, he's with us. In every circumstance, his love never changes. And he's always faithful to his word. And if this has made you more interested in learning about the end times, and as I know, many of you have, have shared that they enjoy studying the end times, then continue to study the book of Revelation. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Dig deeply. Believe the Bible. It never contradicts itself. It's always true. And it will be perfectly fulfilled. Ask the questions. The Bible says that Jesus promises to provide you the answers. If you truly desire to know, God will give you the solution. You're always welcome to email us here at Faith or call us, and we will do our best to help you with whatever question you may have. Remember Jesus' words as I close. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Open the door of your heart to Jesus today. Receive him as your saviour and be saved. That's the greatest thing he wants for you. God bless you all. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day.